BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Celebrate the Chicago Reader. Join us to see the Reader come to life at our second annual On Gala, Wednesday, October 18th, at the stunning Epiphany Center for the Arts. We'll have Reader-approved entertainment, including Grammy Award-winning Peter Cottontail and local rockers The Trenchies, DJs, live art, and other performances. More details are at chicagoreader.com slash ungala. That's chicagoreader.com slash ungala. Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, October 10th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes international film producer, director, and author, Pimone Rami. The Ben Jarofsky show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what's happening in City Hall, and so much more. If you have questions about Chicago, simply head to chicagoreader.com. And if you want even more Ben Jarofsky after this show's over, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. I'll spell that for you. It's J-O-R-A-B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Brandon to the Border Tuesday, and here's why. I'll tell you why, you know, this mayor, Brandon Johnson announced last week, I think it was last week uh, that he was thinking of going to the, but no, he was planning to go to the border, uh, the border as the border, Texas, Mexican uh, border, border with Mexico uh, to see firsthand for himself. What the situation was right was like with uh, migrants coming across the fences, et cetera, and so forth coming into the United States that would help him. He says, understand what to do in the city of Chicago about the bus loads, of Venezuelans, predominantly Venezuelans, asylum seekers being sent to Chicago uh, from the state of Texas. Uh, he kind of backed away from it as soon as he said it. You know, reporters immediately started asking him for specifics. Uh, and <laughs> he clearly didn't want to be uh, tied down with specifics, so he started chiding the reporters. It kind of reminded me, kind of evoked memories of Mayor Daley, Richard M. Daley, my distinguished guest knows who Richard J. Daley is. Most of my listeners are young, don't know. Richard M. Daley, who would get mad at reporters if he didn't like the questions they were going, and try to get red in the face and let them know. Uh, and uh, and so since then, I've noticed a column, sometimes wrote editorial about it. Laura Washington wrote a column about it, Tribune, saying, don't, don't bother going to the border. Just Go to a community meeting, study the situation in Chicago. You know what to do, et cetera, and so forth. And I don't know. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a different road. I think it's really helpful to try to understand as much as you can about a situation uh, before you chart your course. And uh, so in this particular case, you know, a firsthand experience at the border, see exactly what it's like or see a portion of it. You know, maybe you can't get exactly what it's like, just a portion of it, a sense. Have that in your brain when you come back to Chicago and try to formulate policies, try to bring communities together 
you know, get the whole city of Chicago to accept the notion that we have new people moving here all the time, that we're going to be spending resources to accommodate people, that we're going to be petitioning uh, Governor Pritzker and President Biden to assist with us, to make all of Chicago feel that they will benefit from the influx of new residents. I think it would be helpful to just gather as much information as you can, sort of personalize this, let people think that this is not a threat, let people realize that they too can gain something from this, particularly in the black communities of the city of Chicago. I really hope that as our leaders grapple with this issue, they can do something they haven't done, in my humble opinion, in well, since Harold Washington died. And that is structure a citywide program in such a way that it benefits the communities that are the most overlooked, and that is Chicago's black communities. I have argued on this, uh, Mike, I've written in the paper many times that in my humble opinion, the chief planning objective of the city of Chicago over the last 40 years or so, I've lost track of time, 30 years at least, uh, has been to move poor people out of the city of Chicago, particularly poor black people. So why don't we have a moment right now to say, no, 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 we're going to reverse that trend. And we're going to take this influx of new neighbors, if you will, and somehow or other turn at it like a jobs program for the south and west sides where jobs programs are really needed. And I guess what's kind of like, I say this all the time, I spend so much of my time harping on this theme, but I'm watching the utter destruction of life in the Middle East. Israel and Palestine, and just like an inability on either side to try to like comprehend where the other side is at and the special challenges that the other side has, what motivates the other side. I just saw that one of the people, victims uh, in Israel uh, over to the, the attacks this weekend was a peace activist. I just read this article. This man had dedicated his life to peace. And I suppose that the extremists in either factor would almost celebrate that. You know, um, they would think this guy was naive, he just got in the way. But I'm hoping that the United States can learn lessons from this insane conflicts throughout the world, not just in the Middle East, but these insane conflicts that are born out of like racial hatreds, uh, anti-Semitism, just fierce pre prejudice that are so deeply ingrained in people and say, you know what, we're not going to go down that path. We're going to go down a different path and we're going to try to take advantages of some of the like, harmony that we have in this country. So it kind of like a little way it starts in just a little way right here in the city of Chicago, just trying to construct a welcome to our new residents to the city of Chicago in such a way as to benefit the people who already live here. All right, that's my feeble attempt to try to uh, deal with a lot of issues that broke down over the weekend that kind of overwhelmed me. And now I'm going to introduce my distinguished guest, uh, who is going to cheer me up a little bit, I hope, uh, and get me out of my somber, sober state uh, with reflections on his life his time in Chicago, his time in Hollywood, his time with uh, some of the, the great writers and directors, people that I love and admire. Uh, and um, 
and leave me feeling a lot more optimistic uh, about where we are as a world. So uh, Pomone Rami didn't mean to overwhelm me with that difficult task of uh, changing my view of the world right now. Uh, so at the very least, I'll just welcome you to the show and thank you for taking time to talk to me. You know, thank you. Thank you for having me. And you know, I, I do want to say that communication is extremely important. And so to start this conversation with an, a perspective of the world as well as Chicago is extremely important to do. So you play a major role in doing that. As I, as I look at the Middle East and I look at Chicago, a lot of times people that are directly involved don't even remember the history of why they got into the issues in the, same, in the first place. Here in Chicago, there's a lot of gang issues, right, around the city. But, but what a lot of people don't, don't remember is that when the housing projects were torn down, a lot of the, the factions end up being put into the same neighborhood with no consideration of the fact that they had been rivals forever and ever and ever. And, you know, when you look at some of these countries, these are really cousins. You know, they, they're related in many ways. And so we have to take a different perspective and a different look uh, at the way that we not only deal with the world, but the way that we bring children into it. So I'm just glad that there's a continuation of voices and programs like this where we can address the world in a different way because major television doesn't do it, you know, and film doesn't do it. And so it's these, these small pockets of conversation that will allow us to at least understand the person's position. We don't have to agree, you know, at all. But we, what we have to agree with is the fact that you have the right to your opinion and then let it roll from there. So I'm, I'm thankful to be here. It has been a ride being back in Chicago. Um, and you know, this is the um, this is the year where we're supposed to be coming out of the pandemic, where we're supposed to be recovering in terms of spirit. But it seems that um, people are more interested in going on the attack than resolving problems. And so you put something on Facebook and then you personally attack Rather than people arguing the position, they want to attack people. So uh, I, I, I want to relieve your frustrations with it, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're in a world where we can't separate art from the reality of our day. Mm. And so, but, but what we can do is utilize art to make our lives better. Yeah, well put. And um, I feel the same way. And there's some events that are just so incomprehensible to me, uh, Pomone, that I can't. I can't articulate a response. So when, as a podcaster, as a writer, I'm obligated, I feel an obligation to have a response to absolutely everything. So I will read uh, three more, three or four actually newspapers every morning before I get on this mic. And I'll think, oh, well, this happened here. I have a response to that. That triggers the response. And some are, are kind of like almost easy to have a response. You, you know what I'm saying? And then there's some that are just so overwhelming. What? The slaughter in the uh, in Israel over the weekend is one, but I mean, I could think of things like killings here in Chicago. They're just are, are just so unexplicable. It's mind blowing. Or uh, shootings, through, you know, mass shootings in this country. Uh, there's just certain moments I cannot. I just, I have no I, even I have I can't find the words. And uh, 
<laughs> and, and, and sometimes it's because people, we, we have a short historic memory. And so there was a period of time, and you remember this, when there was an epidemic of crack babies, right? You, and you may remember this, that a lot of the parents had been on crack and on drugs, and then they were talking about the fact that these children were going through the same thing. Well, they're grown now. And so a lot of what we're seeing is the residual of young people becoming old and having been given drugs for the majority of their lives, um, the redland that they were given in schools to try to, you know, conform their behavior. And then when they, when they get to be 18, they cut them off. And so now you have these addicted folks that are still trying to deal with how do you live, you know, but you have to keep doing what you're doing. You have to keep raising the issues. And the only thing that I caution people about is you can, you, you need to address what is the outcome. That's not one of the things that we try to do in film and in theater. What do you want people to do after they see the movie? Do you want them to laugh, jump up and down? Do you want them to send money to somebody? Do you want them to cry? What do you want them to do? And that has a lot to do with, on a personal level, whether I think something is successful or not. Not what the critics say, but if the people did what I, what I wanted them to do, did they jump up in the air and jump up and down in the seats? Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to happen. So as we're looking at these stories that are coming out, the question becomes, when somebody reads your story, what do you want them to do? And, and, and what do we want to be encouraging young people to participate in? I was at Columbia College last night speaking on a program, well, actually moderating a program, and I was so overwhelmed by the youth and what they were writing and how they were performing. And as I looked at them, I said, okay, well, we're not completely lost. You know, there's a little slither of, of hope. So all we have to do is continue to feed them and uh, and, and make sure that they have a con- a concentration on making the world a better place. All right, let's um let's get into that in terms of your life. Yes. Uh, and uh, what do you want the, them to do uh, in response uh, to your life, or more specifically, uh, your autobiography, which you just published, uh, and uh, the experience that you've had. So, why don't you start by giving folks a sense of who you are? Okay. Born and raised in the city of Chicago, and take it from there. Yes. I was born at Providence Hospital, the first black hospital uh, in America, actually. And uh, I was born at Providence Hospital. I, I grew up in Bronzeville originally, and then we moved to Stateway Gardens. At the point, now, now most people would have a negative review of Stateway Gardens and what it represented. However, when we moved in, they were, they were just built. The lawns were manicured. There were new applica- uh, appliances, and the symphony orchestra would play there on the weekend. Now, I, I know that people can't imagine that that was the case, but it was. And the park district was full of everything imaginable. So I used to play Little League Baseball and uh, was on a really good team, and my father was the man and was, was the coach. And I would take the equipment back to the park district because you can go to the park, you could grab the equipment, you could bring it back, um, and they would just let you use it. And I go back and I'm looking 
where I drop it off, and these people are up on the stage doing something. They were talking. I didn't know exactly what they were doing. But it was uh, Harold Johnson, um, Joan Brown, and um, and James Hughes. And they were doing the work of Langston Hughes. They had a theater company. And I wasn't, and I was seven or eight at the time. And, and I'm standing there and he said, do you want to be involved? So I said, well, yeah. And so that was my first introduction to theater. Following that, I was introduced to Theodore Ward, who was one of the founders of the Negro Theater uh, uh, in New York with Nancy Hughes and Richard Wright doing the WPA program. And he took me under his wing at his theater. And so I began to direct and uh, created a theater company and when I was between 14 and 19. And then, I, and then um, I was cast in Bird of the Iron Feather, which was the first black soap opera produced. It was on PBS. We did uh, 13 episodes. It was the top rated PBS show in the early 70s. Sam Greenlee, who wrote The Spook Who Said By The Door, saw me on that series and called me up and asked me would I be interested in doing a part in Spook Who Said By The Door. And I said, okay, fine. So I ended up doing the, the, the part in the film, and I also ended up helping to cast the film. Go to California, shoot the scene, come back, and, a, and an agent, Shirley Hamilton, called me. So Shirley Hamilton called and said, I'd like for you to be an extra in a movie that's being shot in town. I said, extra? I just came back with a speaking role shooting in California. I'm the star now. I don't want to. But she convinced me to go. And it was a movie that was starring Isaac Hayes. So Isaac is walking back and forth past me on the street. And he stops and asks me, did he know me? And we started talking. We were both Leos, born in August. But then he had seen an advanced version of Spook Who Sat By The Door, which is what he recognized me from. So we actually ended up hanging out for a couple of days uh, while we were shooting this film. Jump forward a month or two, I get a call from American International Films that Isaac Hayes had recommended me to do the casting for Cooley High. Then a month or so later, I get a call from Motown. They're getting ready to do Mahogany, and Isaac had suggested that I be employed to work on that as well. That was my jumpstart into film. So wait, I need to understand this. Uh, you were walking down the street in Chicago, mm -hmm. and you passed Isaac Hayes, who, for younger listeners, is a brilliant uh, musician, singer, writer, composer, uh, wrote the theme song to the movie Shaft. Uh, and so he recognized you Yes, from <laughs> from just, seeing the movie, from seeing the uh, spook who sat by the door, mm -hmm. and he said, "Hey, you were in, were you the guy in the spook who sat by the door?" He literally, that's how it happened. That's how it happened. That's how it happened. And I ended up doing fourteen feature films as a result of that conversation. As Wait, a result, you say to him at the time, "Hey, are you Isaac Hayes?" Oh no, I knew who he was. <laughs> there was no doubt, and he was a terrible. I guess I should say he was a terrible actor, but. He did. He did some interesting movies. Uh, so no, that's exactly how it happened. And I, I knew he was, and I ended up doing a lot of films. And, and it's between 
Sam Greenlee and Isaac Hayes that I give the credit for doing that. All right. Now, there's a lot to back up on. So let's just start with Stateway Gardens. Mm. You mentioned Stateway Gardens. Uh, help people out. Where in Chicago Stateway Gardens located? Stateway Gardens was the was part of the housing projects that ran from 22nd Street to 51st Street. But Stateway was between 35th Street and 39th on State Street between State Street and Federal. Uh, so that was that footprint. And then Robert Taylor was next next to that to the south. Dearborn Homes was to the north. And Icky's projects was further north than that. And in some instances, there were thousand, there were thousand families uh, in some of those buildings. Um, and so that's that's where it was. But it was also in in the midst of the historic Brownsville community. And so directly across from, from where we were was the historic YMCA, where Black History Month was, was developed. The first black museum, the, the DuSable Museum, was on 38th and Michigan. The Southside Community Arts Center, which is to this day the oldest African-American arts center in America, was started during the WPA program. Uh, they're celebrating 83 years, might be 84 and it's still there and they own the building and they're still working. And so it was, full, and Ted Ward opened the South Side uh, Center for the Performing Arts on 35th Street. So you had, and then the Afro Arts Theater with, with Phil Coran, that was also the home for Shaka Khan and the beginning of Earth, Wind and Fire. Uh, so we were all in this community and had the opportunity to uh, create among ourselves and with each other. Uh, and uh, so what high school did you go to? Wendell Phillips. And where is that located? Uh, that's on 39th and Giles, between Giles and Prairie. But I also went to Christmas Attics Elementary School, which was on 39th and State Street. So, and my mother attended DuSable High School. So, I have a mother that tells me the history of the Dusabo. So I, I knew who Dusabo was even before he became uh, um, advertised in the city. And then I go to Christmas Addicts, which is about the person who died in the American Revolution. And then I leave there and I go to Wendell Phillips that is about an abolitionist. But he also, but also the, the motto for the school was enter to learn and learn to serve. And a lot of us that were there took that to heart. You know, we were supposed to go there to become educated, but at the same time, you had a moral obligation to your community to go back out and to serve. So a lot of us would, like, for example, I taught theater for almost 10 years for free in my house and community centers because we were, we were trying to build an ecosystem um, for performing on the South Side. The artists that went to the... Um, Art Institute would come back to the Southside Community Art Center and teach what they had learned. Um, the um, there was a place called the Community that was part of the Abraham Lincoln Center, where college professors would come and teach on the weekends for free, and people and you could learn everything. And so it was an era in which people, I think, were more more involved with the upliftment of the community than the individual. They were more concerned about how life was rotating around them. Now we just, you know, grab our resources and run away. Um, 
but I was fortunate to, to have been born during a period where I had all these incredible mentors that took me under their wing. And I think part of part of not being wrapped up in violence, part of not being um, not dropping out is understand that you have a reason to live and a positive outlook for the future. And that only comes about as a result of your being in an environment where people uh, are showing you that things can happen, you know, that, and, and give you a nudge. And you might decide you don't want to do it at the end, but it, it's at least a way for you to be informed. So I'll, I'll just say this very quickly. I was at Wendell Phillips High School my sophomore year, and there was a performance by Oscar Brown Jr. that was, the music was uh, by Phil Coran. And it was directed by Okoro Harold Johnson. I saw that show and I said, that's really what I want to do. Now, as I say to people, had I seen a bad play that day, I would have been a furniture refinisher because that's <laughs> what my father did. But instead, I saw this remarkable play yeah. and decided that that's what I would do. Not that there's anything wrong, ladies and gentlemen, with, with furniture refinishers. Okay? <laughs> right. a different path. That's all he's saying. That's, That's right. uh, diminishing their significance in any way. Uh, uh, so give people a sense of um, what was lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I moved to Chicago in 81, the city I've seen so many changes just in my time. But we, you're talking about 20 years before uh, this. So you're rough, roughly the same age, a little older. You're coming of age. Uh, in the 50s and the 60s, and you're living at Stateway Garden, and you just, just described this row of uh, housing complexes that were constructed by the city of Chicago with federal funds under the supervision of Mayor Richard J. Daley, uh, daddy to the son that I just alluded to a little while ago. Uh, and largely, Pomone, you know this as well as I do, largely to accommodate, one, the housing needs uh, that the city desperately faced, but also to make sure that there was nothing resembling integration, right. right? You keep black people over here, keep them out of white neighborhoods, we'll have peace. That was the ruling theory of the people who ran the city of Chicago. So what was that community like in the 60s? In the beginning, it was, it was incredible. There were, there were men, uh, there were families there originally. And so uh, there, there was a ton of men. My father uh, who who really kept me out of trouble because he was he was a baseball coach and all the gang members played with him and everybody in both all communities. So I was able to navigate the entire community because everybody knew my father. But aside from that, it was it was incredible. It was incredibly creative. It was an open opportunity for people to um, to learn and to uh, inter- interface with each other. But then two things happened. One, the housing authority changed the rules. And what and they said for you to be able to live here, you have to be basically a single uh, person. The families were no longer accepted. And so all of the men, for the most part, ended up having to move out. Or the families had to move out. And so what you end up with is a community fundamentally of single women and young boys that are trying to navigate this world by themselves. So that was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened was the money that was set up for the housing uh, authority was stolen. As a matter of fact, there was a guy named William Moorhead who ended up going to prison because he was taking funds and 
and moving them around and taking over um, different uh, complexes and uh, condominiums and things like that. And he was misusing all the funds. So when you, when you have a community that you have all these people you ha and no resources, they're no longer janitors being paid, they're, they're no longer keeping the light bulbs up in the lawns and all that kind of stuff, then it begins to diminish. However, as a point of history, there was a study that was done in Normandy. It was called the Rat Study. Um, and it was done by a guy named Calhoun, where he took a number of rats and put them in a confined area where they had everything that they needed except the possibility of growth because it was a limited space. And what happened? What happened is that they began to eat each other. They began to become violent. They began to express homosexual tendencies. They began to uh, not take care of their children. All of those things is what happened to the rats. That study was done before the housing projects were built and the housing authority had a copy of it because I, I saw the copy when I was working at the housing authority. And so they knew what was going to happen. And when you look at the results and you read that rat study, the same thing happened to the people that were in that confined area in the housing projects. Was there a point uh, in your life there that you were scared? Oh, of course, 1965, I think. And, and what happened? The housing, all of us went to Christmas Attics. So we knew everybody, every, from 35th Street to 39th Street. Everybody went to, to Attics, and we knew all these, we all knew each other. Then they changed the boundaries, and they split it in half. So from 37th to 35th, they went to a school called Raymond, and from 35th, to 39th, they continued to go to addicts. They ultimately became enemies. It, and, and when you look at North Vietnam, South Vietnam, when you look at Pakistan and India, they're all relatives. They just put an artificial border in between, and now we're enemies, even though some of us are related. And so that's the period where I became more fearful because the folks from 35th to 37th would shoot or, or at the people from 37th to 39th. Ninth. Now, when I say shoot, however, during that period, people used what were called zip guns. And I don't know if any of your followers know what a zip gun is, but it was made out of a bicycle spoke and it would shoot a 22 bullet. But for the most part, it would blow up in your hand. Uh, they, they very seldom ever worked. But that's what people were shooting with. And so you don't hear or you don't see a lot of uh, danger or, or deaths from shooting during that period because the guns weren't available uh, in the same way that they became available later. Um, but, yeah, that was the period that I became most fearful um, because of the insurgence of, of gangs because of the lack of men. And there were no longer men there that could stand up and say, this is not right and it's not going to happen. In 1966, uh, yeah. Martin Luther King brought his campaign uh, for, uh, well, he, he literally, I'm not making this up, Pomona, he said he, his, his goal was to uh, end poverty. Think about that as a goal. Uh, and uh, he moved into Lawndale on the west side. Uh, and eventually, 
uh, he uh, began to lead a series of um, open uh, marches for open housing throughout white neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, uh, in, uh, which uh, led to all kinds of rock throwing and yelling and screaming from the residents of the neighborhoods that he walked through. Uh, and then Mayor Daley did everything. They had a, a sit-down meeting where Mayor Daley did everything he possibly could to encourage Martin Luther King to get out of town. Uh, and uh, Martin Luther King had had enough of Chicago, and he got out of town. And I've always looked back at 1966 as like this last great opportunity uh, for the city of Chicago to try to kind of reconcile where it was, where it had been, where it was going, and maybe go on to a new path to try to avoid the 60 years of misery that have ensued. Uh do you you were you were a kid you were like 17 or so uh, i had just been 16 when he was here and i had a chance to hear him yeah uh, he came down to stayway gardens that was one of his stops along the way and i was at home and someone came and knocked on my door and said the king is in in the park now i thought they were talking about the king of england because i i had i had never heard of my Martin Luther King. so i yeah. go out and I hear this man, and he's Martin Luther King, and he's eloquent and and smart and all these kind of things. And he said, "I'm going to mar- we're going to march to Cicero, Marquette Park, and Gates Park." And I said, "I'm going home because <laughs> you're crazy." Now, yeah, 1959, the White Sox played uh, for the pennant. And as the little leaguer, seven, eight years old, we went to to see the game. And we wore uniforms. We had these these white uniforms, red hats with the R on it for for rockets. And on our way out, we went out the wrong door. We went out the door on the Bridgeport side of the ballpark. But there was another little park that was, that was opposite the ballpark. And so we started throwing balls around and, you know, on our way to the car to, to get ready to leave. And we were attacked by the community uh, with bricks and bats and name calling. And it was vicious. And they, they chased us all the way from there across the Dan Ryan back to where Stayway Gardens was. So that was my first exposure to, to racism because we, as a young kid, you're saying, so what do we do? You know, why are these people acting like that? But when my, so when Martin Luther King came, I had already been exposed to the fact that these neighborhoods, you just don't go in if you want to continue to live. And so when he talking about going to Marquette Park, we knew that that was not a good idea. And what he said in his speech, was that he felt more violence and hatred than he had ever felt in the South. Yeah, yeah I, I, that was in Marquette Park uh, on the far southwest side mm-hmm. of Chicago. Uh, so wh- where I was going with that is uh, I've often viewed that as the last chance that Chicago had uh, to make peace with itself and, and set on a new path. And I feel naive even saying what I just said. Uh, but I, that's how I view it. Uh, do you think I'm being naive? Do you think based on your experiences in 1959, when those kids chased you out of Bridgeport, uh, across the expressway, that it was hopeless in 1966 that nothing Martin Luther King could have done could have changed that Chicago mindset, uh, 
Yeah, and in some ways that's still reflected today. You know, there was this whole notion of being separate but equal. And had that been a reality, then I think people would have responded differently. Because if if we had the same kind of housing, same kind of neighborhoods, if we have the same kind of schools in terms of supplies and materials, whether or not you integrate yourself is not as relevant because you have all these services that's the same that anybody else had. I think that, that King, I think even Jane Byrne, when she, when she came into office, was another opportunity. Um, and I don't know if she was just trying to, you know, win again or whether she legitimately wanted to make things happen and change. And then I think that, that Harold Washington, again, was another possibility. At some point in Chicago, people have to realize that, that whatever is good for all of us is what we should be pushing in terms of, of how we construct the reality that everybody has an opportunity to expand and grow. And the only way that you can do that is, is for politicians to do their jobs. And what is that? The fundamental responsibility of a politician is to collect, provide, and distribute resources. That's Other than that, they don't have any... I mean, you can say they vote on some stuff, but in general, it's about how you prepare and share and build. And unless that's done in an equitable way, our issues will never be resolved. One final example of that. So people have always historically said that black people, when they riot, have burned up their own communities. And why are they burning up their own communities? Well, philosophically, I'd say black people have never built up, have never burned their communities. Not in the history of Chicago. They have, they have burned the places where they either were retained or where they were renting, but nobody burned up Chatham. Nobody burned uh, Hill Hill. Nobody burned Ladera Heights in, in California because those were homes that people owned. And so you sort of protect that which you value. If you don't value it and you're being mistreated, then what are you going to do? There was a gentleman named Gloves Davis that was a police officer. Well, there were two. One, uh, that, that your listeners might want to look up is Two Gun Pete, one of the most vicious black police officers ever in the city of Chicago. And his protege was called Gloves Davis. And the reason he was called Gloves is because before he beat people up, he put these black leather gloves on. Uh, but he terrorized um, the black community. So whenever whenever somebody saw his car coming, it it would be like a commercial where you see the car, you turn back around, you got a thousand people, and then you see the car and you turn back around, the thousand people are gone. That's the kind of fear that he brought to the table. And so you're, you're living under this fear of police. You're looking at the fact that you don't have resources, and then there are communities that you just can't go to. And and but on the other hand, there is the spirit in Chicago that people, in spite of all of the things that have been done or not done still love the city. Don't know why, but they do. And, and, and they, they try to preserve it and, uh, and they're really for it. And so in, in my estimation, again, uh, if we can stop politicians from being uh, 
selfish. And if we can have people to look at the reality of the city as a whole, they would all be better off. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I don't know if we'll ever have an answer to that question about uh, uh, 1966 and uh, what Daly might have done, what the powers that be might have done in the city of Chicago uh, to um, seriously address the concerns that Martin Luther King uh, was raising. I do know that they hit him in the head with a rock and essentially threw him out of town. And that was yeah. Chicago's reaction to Martin yeah. Luther King. And a lot of the churches uh, went against him as well. There were very few few churches that would support him, and part of that was because Daly uh, had a stranglehold yes. um, on the control of the churches. So uh, he had a really difficult time getting support. So uh, two years later, uh, 1968, mm-hmm. you were 18 years old, a young scholar at Wendell Phillips High School, about to graduate, uh, and you led a, a march. Yes. Uh, Causing nothing but trouble for the people. <laughs> why, why don't you tell our listeners about the march you led in 1968? Go ahead. Okay, so I started in 67 first. In 67, uh, Owen Lawson was a teacher at Inglewood High School, and he was one of the first teachers in the city to start teaching Black history. Um, and so he was fired, and so the students in Inglewood. Uh, began to protest. They had a walkout, and and they began to organize. And so we, in essence, went over to help the students at Inglewood. They didn't get him; his, he didn't get his job back, and they didn't really win that that fight. But on the other hand, it was the conduit for the development of a relationship between students at a variety of different schools. So in 1968. Um, there was a black power conference held in Philadelphia during the same time that the democratic convention was held here. And I attended that conference and co-chaired the student works, the high school student workshop. So while we were there, we, we would look, we were looking at education and the things that needed to be done. And so we created this manifesto that, that set the direction for what we should do to change the schools that we were attending. Now, what did we want to change? There were very few black teachers. There were even fewer black administrators. Black businesses were not allowed to to be vendors in CPS. So if you were going to buy your school ring or your school jacket or anything like that, or, or even hire a photographer, there were no black people included. And so we we began to organize around the city to address that. And so I called a meeting when we got back from Philadelphia and I got representatives from um, 13 of the high schools to come and sit down and meet. Now, people always ask me, how did I know these students? Well, I had a, I was a performer. I had a performing group. And so the, the couple of years before, we had toured around the city. I met my wife, for example. We've been married for uh, 55 years. I met her at KMS when we went there to perform. Her, Shaka Khan was there, and uh, Marsha Warfield, the comedian. And so we, we, we met all of them. So I knew all these people, and I called a meeting. And we ended up organizing uh, a citywide boycott. 35,000 young people walked out. And we were able to address the issues with the Board of Education. Uh, we only boycotted on Mondays because we wanted to make it clear that it wasn't about not being educated. It was about trying to make some changes. So we did 
uh, six Mondays in a row. Um, we had a mock funeral of the Board of Education down at the Daily Plaza, where, uh, because I was in theater, we, we built a coffin, and we had people dressed in, in black KKK robes, and we, we had this march downtown. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, we were able to get a lot of changes made. Uh, now, there was also a march in 63 um, that was based around the Willis wagons. And for those of you in the audience that don't know, uh, at a point, they put trailers in the parking lots of schools because there was no more room. But you would have to walk in the winter out of the build, main building into the trailer. And then if you had to go to the bathroom or whatever, you'd have to go, you'd have to navigate the weather. So there was a group of community organizations and parents that organized that 63 March. The difference in 68 is that it was organized by the students themselves. And so, you know, we couldn't lose our jobs because we didn't have any, you know, so, yeah, so that's what happened. That's pretty wild. Like the picture mm. of you uh, at that march, uh, mm. <laughs> you're so young. Well, it was a long time ago. You were so young and uh, yeah. such a handsome young man uh, leading that march, uh, 68. And, um, I mean, that was right in the middle of it all, ladies and gentlemen. There were the riots. Martin Luther King was killed on April 4th, I want to say, of 1968. Yeah. Uh, and the riots that engulfed the West Side, I mean, a lot of West Siders tell me uh, Pomona has never, has never been the same since. It hasn't. It hasn't. Since. It hasn't. And, uh, you know, people at that point, you have Malcolm X, who represents, at least to white America, represented militancy, violence, whether he was or not is a whole other issue. But that's what he represented. And then you have Martin Luther King, who represented nonviolence, and, and in essence, the opposite of Malcolm, even though ideologically they had some things in common. I was talking to a person who was running for office recently, and he said, you know, King tried nonviolence, he was killed. Malcolm tried violence, he was killed. So what are you to do? And I think that that's where young people, a lot of young people are. You know, like, what do you do when it seems that nothing you do is good enough? And when is enough enough? And so for, for me, that became very clear in the 60s. And so I, I ended up trying to infuse my art with a political notion that would change lives. And that was motivated by the civil rights movement, by the Black Power movement, by King, Malcolm, uh, uh, Leroy Jones, Imam Baraka, who was a poet and, and playwright. Uh, and we began to, to develop materials that was specific to what our community needs are. Cooley High was one of the first movies that was a coming of age story that we could feel and understand all those people in that movie. And so I think that that's why it was as, as big as it was in the black community. Because you know we knew Cochise, we knew Preacher, yeah. um, we we knew those people, and it was the first time that that had been done. And a quick aside, um, I'll sidestep here a minute. When we finished that movie, we shot the TV pilot for Cooley High as a series. It was directed by Ivan Dixon. It was starring uh, 
Ernest Thomas in the role that uh, Glenn Turman had played and Dorian Harewood in the role that Lars Hilton Jacobs had played. We shot the series at API, American International, uh, American Pictures, American International Pictures, AIP. They said it wasn't funny enough. So they didn't accept it, but they turned it into what's happening now. And it became that series instead with the same actors that were originally supposed to do Cooney High. Yeah, and you learned a lesson uh, from that experience. Yeah. You, you know, every every time I've done a film, I've learned something about the process, the parody, in terms of funding, uh, and also the impact that it can have. I mean, people want to say that we're doing our own thing, but we really don't. You know, we, we respond to commercials and to celebrity. And, and so our doing our own thing really becomes a reflection of the people, you know, that we're, that we're covering or that we're around. And so I think that the more options young people have and watching stories and developing stories, the better off we'll all, we'll all be. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And th things have definitely changed, uh, or, uh, well, to a certain degree anyway, uh, since uh, the 70s when you tried to uh, get to Cooley High into a, um, a TV show. I, so let's let's get into your Hollywood career. We, we've been talking extensively about Political Junkie, uh, about uh, Pomone's life in Chicago, and I can probably continue talking about the 60s and the 70s in Chicago for the next uh three hours but let's move uh to hollywood this is fascinating in its own right could be its own separate interview because mm. i'm equally obsessed uh with movies i don't know if i shared that with you for a moment um but uh so i'm not a huge fan don't get mad at me i'm just speaking honestly of the spook who sat by the door the movie um but i am a huge fan of the book which i just reread i think i, I sent you a picture of it I read it when I was a kid. It scared the hell out of me. I won't lie to you, Pomone, because I was a white kid reading it. I was like, God, mm -hmm. black people are going to be rioting. And it's, <laughs> that was, I admit, my reaction when I was about 14 when I read it. Uh, but I knew I was in the hands of a, a great writer in Sam Greenlee. Yeah. I was very Talk about I, Sam. I asked Sam one day, why didn't he just do it rather than write a book about it? Because Sam was part of the the uh, American, what was it called? It was called the American Information Service, which was part of the uh, part of the precursor for the CIA. And he was he was uh, in Lebanon originally, and then he was in Syria and some other places. And so, in many ways, his life was like the swoop. And I asked him one day, "Well, why didn't you do it?" He said, "What well, I wanted people to realize that." You should go undercover in whatever market you're in and come out and bring that back to the community to serve it. And I get it because whether you're in medicine, whether you are in entertainment, at some point, you should take those skills back and, and pass them back down. And I, I say that to theater companies all the time and the actors, you know, how do you do, how do you put on a play? And you have 15 people in the cast and five people in the audience. It's because the actors have not been drilled into the fact that you also have a responsibility for building audience 
and the sustainability of the institutions. And so in Spook, at the end of the day, it's really a movie about helping your community with whatever it needs and whatever your successes are, sharing those back. So it's, that, you, you think of it in terms of metaphor. Uh, yeah, and all of it. You know, I was I was talking to uh, a, a black doctor who's one of the top brain surgeons in the world, and he he was talking about Spook who said about the door, and he said, you know, that's a lot of times how I feel, being in the medical. I can't say what I want to say. I really can't be who I want to be. You know, I've got to, you know, bite my tongue so often. And so when you're living in that kind of environment, you have to um, you have to be able to wear a mask. Yeah and maintain your sanity at the same time. Yeah, that's yeah. what the book is all about. I, just, I literally, Pomona, I just literally reread re this book and it, it's as good as it, I believe it's ever been. Just the, that concept of having to don a mask to go out into the world um, and to be, to figure out what the man wants you to be in order to placate the man while learning what you can from the environment you're in. Mm -hmm. And you can only be in that environment if you wear the mask. So you can't <laughs> let them see that you're learning. I mean, it's like a chess game, a game within a game. You, yeah. You're absorbing absolutely everything they have to order, offer, but you can't show them that you're absorbing what you have, they have to offer because then they would get wonder why you're absorbing things because they don't believe you are capable of absorbing things if you follow mm -hmm. everything I just said there on that riff. And, <laughs> right. and so they wouldn't know what he was doing. Uh, and he, in this case, he was learning all the techniques of being a, a spy, which he then mm -hmm. used to launch a revolution, mm -hmm. uh, which would scare the hell out of me when, at age yeah. 14. And I was some good, I'm scared. But, uh, <laughs> but you know what I can tell just from yeah. hearing, hearing you now that, if you weren't in this environment and able to say whatever you could say, you'd be saying a whole lot of different stuff. You disagree with that? Oh, so you're as openly honest as you would normally be if you weren't on air? I, I, absolutely. Well, no. I mean, uh, yes to your question. Uh, I, so, yes, you're absolutely correct. I tell everybody who comes on the mic, I said, we're on a mic. So people in the city of Chicago are so used to saying, well, been off the record. And then they tell you what they think. Right. Okay. And I go, okay. and then I say to them, okay, you said off the record. And I respect you're off the record, but I'm bringing you on a microphone. <laughs> right. There is no off the record on a microphone. Okay. We're not going to edit it out. You're grown up. You have to be able to say what you think and do it in a way where, I don't know a way that's manageable for you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, are you capable of doing that? And you know, Pomone, some people say, no, I'm not. And they walk away. I go, okay. Yeah. So, you know, some people come on the mic and they won't talk. <laughs> Look at the mic. <laughs> yeah. what you say. So yes, we yeah. all police our thoughts to a certain degree. Um, and sometimes like at the opening of the show, I don't know what to say. Hmm. Like, how do I make sense out of something that's senseless? Yeah. I, 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 I have nothing to offer on this because I haven't figured out what it is that I have to offer. When I do, I will share it with you. Not that I'm 
you know, foolish enough to believe it'll change, but it's like any senseless act. I don't know what to say, uh, but you're absolutely correct. Sam Greenlee's story is such a powerful metaphor on so many levels. Yeah. It, even yeah. if you're not black, anybody can, and you just, you can relate to what he's saying. In my opinion, yeah. uh, having just read the book. And and he had a difficult time because once that book came out, he couldn't get any work. I mean, he, he not only from the studios, but the col- even the black colleges wouldn't hire him because they were scared uh, of the repercussions of that. And so Sam ended up, you know, not being as successful as he should have been. And he's and he has other books and he and he had a he has a, a, a he has a book called Baghdad Blues, which is the which comes before this book is set by the door, and it's about the downfall of, of Baghdad and what happened during the revolution uh, in Iran. It's a it would make a great film, but he was he was isolated because because of the spook and a lot of the actors, um, Al Freeman, who was the lead, he had a couple of us, his name was Lawrence Cook. The character's name was Al Freeman. Uh, but Lawrence Cook, he um, he ended up getting like one small part on the show, but really never worked again. And the majority of those actors uh, really were never able to work. Yeah, you talk about the actors in the movie. In the movie, yeah. Yeah. There's a funny scene, though. So, so let me just share this. So there's a, there's a scene in the movie where they have the riot. If you see, and so there's a scene where there's a there's a um, paddy wagon, and they're grabbing people and they're throwing them in, into the paddy wagon. And there's a woman with her purse beating off the police as they push her into the paddy wagon. Well, she wasn't an actress. She just happened to be walking down the street <laughs> and thought it was a real riot and got involved, and it ended up in it ended up being a great scene. Yeah. So we, we had a 50th anniversary uh, showing in Gary uh, over the summer and her family, she's no longer living, but her family showed up and we shot it in the same place that was used for the CIA headquarters in the movie. And they brought out the original chairs that we used in the film uh, 50 years ago. And, and a lot of the family members and extras and, and stuff showed up. So it was just a, a great day. Uh, to relive that with them. Um, so, all right, uh, let's uh, close uh, with um, my favorite movie. Uh, well, not my, I don't know, my favorite movie, definitely in the top 10. And I don't, few movies have had the impact on me that this movie had on many levels. It's called Cooley High. Uh, and, you know, I've urged millennials to watch it. Uh, and Pomona and I have stopped urging them um, because I don't think, I, I think it says more about me or people who love Cooley High uh, than Cooley High you, to a new generation. If you, That doesn't really make sense, but I understand what I'm trying to say. In other words, you got to kind of have been a kid in the 70s to really love Cooley High, in my opinion, uh, the way I love it. I just recommended it to a, a Gen Xer guy in his early 50s, and I could tell he didn't really like it, but he was just trying to be polite because I had, oh, my God, Cooley High. <laughs> but Pomone, it's just like every time I see it, I love it. Uh, it just really captures just a moment, I think, of where um, a great possibility in your life when you're like 18 and just the, you, 
if you do the right things, you're going to have a great life. Your life will be really just successful. But if you do the wrong thing, if you, if you go down the wrong way, man, you end up dead. I mean, yeah. I don't want to give anything away. But so that's to me, that's what Cooley High really encapsulates. Your thoughts about why you think Cooley High is such a great foot. I think that these, the notion that you can follow the path of success and failure of two people with promise, because that's what coaches and preacher represented. They both, one was going to be an incredible basketball player. The other one was going to be an incredible writer. And just from a flip of the coin, their lives went in totally different ways. I think a lot of times, um, the problem with the current generations watching the older movies is that the technology has changed so much that they don't, they feel that it's old before they can even hear the story. And if Cooley High was done with the current technology and, and film and color correction and, and the kind of energy of today, uh, I think people would, would um, accept it more because old movies do have storylines that we should be able to relate to yeah. because it is part of our, our ongoing history. And I was on, uh, I was on, I was on some show with somebody and I said that I thought that two of the greatest films that should be made would be the Halle Selassie story or the Marcus Garvey story. And so the person said to me, well, those are old, those are old stories. I said, but they're so as readers of the law's art. Mm-hmm. You know, but but you can relate to them because of how they were put together. And so sometimes I think that young people have to be encouraged to look back at those historic moments and realize that there is still a story there. I asked somebody yesterday, as part of this this program I was doing, how do you come up with stories? How do you decide uh, what you're going to do? And to be able to tell a story, you first have to be able to listen. You really have to be able to listen. So, that, so we were on this, I was on this, I was being interviewed. And so the woman asked the person in the audience, was she Peaches? I think her name was Peaches, or something like that. I'll use Peaches. And she said, no, she wasn't. But that's who she thought it, she recognized. And I said, I use this as an example. I said, okay, so. You see what she just did? She thought this was a person. Well, what if you go to a funeral looking for for your friend, but all you've ever known was their nickname? You know, so you go in looking for Bubba. And you don't <laughs> and you don't know what the real name is, what what and so we have to tune ourselves into being able to hear the stories that are floating around us. And I think too many filmmakers now. And and even theater people are writing with the hope of being on Netflix or having a series. So, so I saw a play the other day, and, and it's like, you really think this is going to be a sequel? Why didn't you end this play? You left it up like, we're going to come back next week and see another part of it. <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but I think a lot of times people are, um, have gotten away from writing for anything but wanting to have a major, major film under their, under their belt. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, you're the casting director mm-hmm. for Cooley High and Mahogany. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what clothes? I just got to ask you this. So, Mahogany, 
which was a very I think it was more popular. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It just seemed like I think it made more money than Cooley High. It did. Uh, it was a glamour movie of the seventies. So were you the one who told Barry Gorey to uh, uh, hire Diana Ross? No, uh, everybody except for Diana and Billy. Okay, and, and Tony go. Perkins. Um, I did all the other stuff. Um, a lot of times when you're doing films like that, the you know the the celebrities, the stars are attached. The director might be attached. The director of photography might be attached originally. And that's how they got the green light to be able to do the movie. But after that, you've got to find everybody else to wrap around them. The B. Arthur, the B. Richards, the, um, uh, here we, we hired Stephen Williams and Jackie Taylor and, uh, a bunch of those people, which, which I knew because I had been doing theater here for so long. In Cooley Hideout. You switched to Yeah. So I think I told you this, we'll close with this. I have a, a dear friend, Rick Stone. Uh, who was in Cooley High, and uh, he tells me this story, which I believe because Rick told it to me. I believe everything Rick tells me. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, he was Stone in the movie Cooley High. Mm -hmm. So if you see Cooley High, ladies and gentlemen, Stone is Rick Stone. And Rick Stone had no acting experience whatsoever. He was, uh, as he tells it, he was a gangbanger in, in Cabrini Green, which is where Cooley High is set. And one day he was playing... Um, basketball and uh, somebody came by in a car and said hey come on over to the playboy mansion we're going to be auditioning for cooley high and so he went there with his friend norman who is his uh, partner uh in crime and rick's attitude was we either <laughs> sorry we're either going to get the role if we don't get the role we'll just stick them all up and rob them <laughs> <laughs> And luckily for all involved, he got the role. Mm. Uh, a very gifted actor, even though he had never done any acting before, uh, Stone. Uh, is that how your memory is of the casting of uh, Stone? Uh, yes, actually. I don't know about the stick-up part, but yes, the rest of it sounds like it's intact. You know, one of the things about the 70s, um, and we had to put it in context, there was very little theater or film training during that period of time. And so, like, if you go back to the 30s, in the early parts of Hollywood, the only Black people that were in films were either the butler or the maids of the studio execs because that's the only Black people that they knew. Mm -hmm. Ivan Dixon was one of the first few actor-actors mm -hmm. that went to Hollywood and got involved because he was Sidney's uh, understand-in um, for the movie he did with uh, Tony Curtis. I don't remember the name of it right now. Um, but... Uh, yeah, but he did that. And so in Chicago, when we did um, Bird of the Iron Feather, which was the black soap opera that I mentioned, they wanted to hire a black director, but there were none. Nobody, nobody black in Chicago had ever directed TV. So Harold Johnson, who was a theater director, was sent to Boston to get a, a directing certificate so that he could come back and end up being one of the directors. Well, the same thing with actors. Where would we have gotten them? Like, where would film actors have gotten their start? There weren't that many movies being made. And so you had to find people that could really learn it in the process. And so what you hoped to do was find somebody that could be themselves. So when you talk about stoning those folks, you figure, okay, well, you know, let's go, we need a gang member, let's go get a gang member. <laughs> 
and give him and give him some lines. I did a movie called Monkey Hustle, and there were two characters described as buggy bear, uh, hugger bears. They were two strippers that was supposed to be in the movie, and this was one of the early movies that I that I did the casting for. So I went to a strip joint and got these two women and took them to the audition. And the director says to me, not that much of Boogie Bears. <laughs> you know, uh, we need somebody a little less real in that part. And so we ended up hiring two actresses that, that did it. But it was a developmental stage. And if you go back to that period, most of the movies that were made during that period were not that good. Uh, if you're comparing them to now, uh, when you have a whole technology that was driven around it so you had kodak making new film you had canon making new cameras you had the universities begin to train people you had writers uh groups that were coming out and developing uh, it's so it was a process and fortunately we got through that process and the films that are being made now are technically better but not necessarily written better yeah absolutely agree with that yeah. And uh, I think that's why uh, I have. It's challenging to recommend a movie like Cooley High to someone who's a younger, because they can't get into the flow of the movie because it's a different pace. It's not what they're used to, and so I just quit. I'll be honest with you, Pomona. I'm like, you know what? If I'm not, I'm making you literally sign this a mental waiver where I don't want to hear it from you if you don't like this movie because it's one of my favorites. I don't want to hear you. Uh, by the way, did you? Uh, I just will clo close with this. Uh, I do not know the answer to this question. Did you cast Car Wash? No, that was um, that was Jimmy Spinks. Uh, Jimmy was a big guy that was in Car Wash. I know Wash. who Jimmy is. Yeah, yeah, that was Jimmy. Wait, and, Jimmy uh, cast it? Yeah, he did a lot of the casting for Car Wash. And he gave yeah. himself a role in it. And was in it, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when, when you're in Chicago... And when you go any place to shoot, you want to find somebody that knows people. Yeah. And so I was working on another project when they were doing that. And Jimmy had done the Marva Collins story with me. And he had done some other film with me, uh, helping me uh, as my assistant director. And so when that came up, his cousin, who was Ruben Cannon, ended up hiring him to uh, to, to finish that project. You know, it's his his cousin has, has done some incredible work since. Well, let me just say this about the late, great Jimmy Spinks. This man was so talented, ladies and gentlemen. He could sing. He could do imitations. He had a great comic style. Uh, I had lunch with him a few times. He was so funny in a, in a kind of dark way. <laughs> Even things he would say about other people sitting in the restaurant, and then he would do imitations of them while eating. He was a big man. He would just... It's hard to explain um, the enormity of Jimmy Spinks. Yeah, and he was talent. He was, and, uh, and uh, you know, he, he's one of those that that uh, that we miss. But you know, when I did my book, I as I started writing it, I decided to put a section in the front of all the people that we had lost um, that had worked in film or television or um, in the political movement, and all these people that I worked with. And Jimmy was one of those. And so what I say to historians and, and scholars that, that I talked to around the book is that you can go through that first section and any of those people would deserve a documentary. 
in terms of of the what they did for Chicago. Uh, I mean, when you talk when you talk about Studs Terkel, Studs Terkel and Oscar Brown and the early work they did on Destination Freedom, is uh, which was a radio show, is worth being rediscovered and people talking about. And so, what I hope is when people read my book is that they will realize that every step along your your age, you can make a difference, whether you're a teenager, whether you're in you know, whether you're grown, whatever the case might be, you will shift because the older you get, the more you have to be responsible for feeding your families. But at the same time, you can constantly be active. And the final thing that I want people to realize is that they really need to keep information. You have to document the things that you're doing. And at the end of the day, also put the year. If you look at all those posters from the 30s and the 40s and the Regal Theaters, and there's no year. Yeah, don't put the year on. <laughs> this is October 24th. And so as historians, you really want to know, well, what year did this take place? Yeah. You know, so, oh, uh, so those are the things that I would hope that people uh, would pick up from the book. And it's in, you know, it's in all the libraries and in most of the outlets. Where all right. I've been, I was neglectful. I will close tell people the name of your book uh, and uh, I will leave them with that message. So take it away. Okay. The name of the book is when blackness was golden observations from the front line. And it deals with Chicago from the 1950s until the 1990s. And the reason that I called it when blackness was golden is because it was an era in which people were more interested in the upliftment of the community than they were as themselves as individuals. And so you have all of these organizations and institutions being developed for the purpose of improving the quality of life. And I wanted those to be remembered. I wanted people to know about all these incredible people and what they were doing in terms of service for the young people as they look at it, know that you're never too young to give. You're never too young to make a difference and it only takes one all right very good enter to learn leave to serve thank you very much uh pomon rami for uh coming on my show hope to bring you back soon talk politics talk theater talk movies uh whatever you want to talk about it would be my pleasure to have you on do you agree to that i agree to it call me all anytime right. and i'm with you all right so we just cut a deal ladies and gentlemen <laughs> the guy from chicago the guy from evanston just cut a deal uh, <laughs> And we'll talk about your 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 stay in Hollywood. That's a whole other story, ladies and gentlemen. The man lived in Hollywood, or not Hollywood, but Cali, yeah. uh, for about twenty or so years. All right, Pomona, uh, uh, thank you very much. Also, want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job as he always does. I think Pomona will agree with me when I say, "Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. <laughs> Peace and love, everybody." And remember, if you want to get caught up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J. Bonus interviews, or any columns from Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com. It's all right there for you. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram, at Benny J. Show. And please like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on all your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. <laughs>